we are moving along in this series in the Lord's Prayer. And this prayer is, in a lot of ways, like dynamite. Because it's small, but when it is lit by faith, it's explosive in its power. And here's the thing about prayer. We're kind of left wondering if it works. Uh, There's a mystery to it. Because we pray these prayers, and we're supposed to trust that God is going to hear them and answer them. But we're supposed to also trust that he's not going to answer them the way that we would want him to, but the way that he would have it, because he's infinitely more wise than us. And so that means when you pray, you have to understand if you had as the infinite wisdom that God had, you would pray the exact prayer that is needed and he would answer it exactly the way you prayed it because you had the same wisdom that he had. But we don't have that. And so we're left to understand and believe that God will answer our prayers precisely when he means to. And he will answer them precisely the way that is right. And it won't look Maybe even like an answer, because he's so gracious that he heard your prayer, and he's like, I'm not going to do that to you. I have something much better. And what we're doing each week is we're taking a magnifying glass, and we're looking at this famous Lord's Prayer, and we're getting up close and personal with little parts of it. And the part we're looking at today is this phrase, your kingdom come. And as you pray this prayer, it's meant to be prayed like this. You look around at the world, and you say, This is not my home. I know that I am made for more than this. I know that I am made to become more than this. Now, here's my question to you. How do you know that? How do you know that there's something wrong with this world? Because if you look throughout history, it's just repeating the same self in a a lot of ways. And here's how you know that something is wrong. Because there's this verse in Hebrews, and it says... As it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So what that means is there is something in you that God has deposited there like an ancient memory of Eden that is telling you, this is not your home. Dream for something better. And in doing that, this is the cry, God, your kingdom come. And we could see this. So so you pray this prayer like this. You look around at the world near and far, and we see wars fought across the world, and then we see wars that are fought in our own home. There's tragedy all around us. Death is like like closing in. And we don't really know how to respond to it, to be honest with you, with death to death. Because we're not made for it. We're made for eternity with God. Um, Just after we started the grove, there was a a young woman who was struck by a drunk driver and she lost her life from it. Earlier this year, I did a funeral for a little two-year-old boy who lost his battle against cancer. And there's tragedy. And it's not just these big tragic events, but then there's this daily fight against depression that seems to bruise your mind and your heart. And and it feels like life is just like you got this bruise and something's poking you all day long. Or you have sickness. Or you have a job that you're not satisfied with. Or you have financial difficulties. Or there's just this feeling that this is not the way that my life was supposed to go. 
and I'm not happy about this. And so we have to ask, what's the solution to all of this? And the Lord's Prayer says, pray this prayer, your kingdom come. And Christians are meant to be people of action, and our very first actions ought to always be to pray this prayer, your kingdom come. So we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to read it to you. And then we are going to just jump into what it means to pray for his kingdom to come. So here we go. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All right. Throughout history, great minds, great theologians have been trying to make sense of what it means for the kingdom of God to come. And there's been lots of debates, lots of arguing back and forth. And if we just look at it from a distance and we, we look at these great minds and how they have dissected the Bible, there are four ways that we can understand the kingdom of God to come into our world. First way is in our own hearts. Second is that the kingdom of God comes through the word of God. Third, the kingdom of God comes in our society. And then fourth, we want to long for and pray the kingdom of God to come in fullness. And so the first one is the kingdom of God to come in our own hearts. And what that means is that you have become the type of person when you pray this prayer, that is becoming fully alive in a world that is crumbling around you. You've become a beacon of hope, a beacon, a beacon of joy, a beacon of strength, of, of love and of peace when everything around you says you should not be those things. It's like a light in a dark place. And he, here's how the prayer goes. Here's your surroundings. The world is not the way it ought to be, and you feel it. And so you pray, God, your kingdom come. And here, here's what this prayer does. It, it's like it turns back on you. God hears you pray your kingdom come, and then he looks right at you, and he says, that's right. What are you going to do? And so you get pushed into the chaos around you to become this beacon of light, this beacon of hope, this beacon of faith to do some good around you. That's the calling. So, so you look at your home life and you say, this is not the way I want it to be. I'm not loving like I should. We are not loving like we should. We're not enjoying each other like we should. And so you pray this prayer, God, bring your kingdom into my home. And then the prayer turns back on you and begins to equip you and strengthen you to become the type of person that can bring the kingdom in your home. And so husbands, fathers, you pray this prayer, God, may your kingdom come. And then God says to you, what kind of father would you like? Then be that to your children. Become the type of father that sweeps your wife, uh, not father, your, your kind of husband, sweeps your wife off her feet. And, and let me tell you about this prayer too. This prayer will not stop, stop arguments in your household. In fact, it might add more arguments to your household. But what it will also do is change the way you argue. There will be love behind your words. There is going to be good for each other. You're fighting for each other, not against each other. 
in the arguments. It's a changing of the posture that happens. And then, then you look in your workplace and you look in your neighborhood and you pray, God, bring your kingdom. Like, one, we do this well in our homes, but then we talk about our workplace and our neighborhoods, and we don't pray so much about the kingdom to come there. And you pray this prayer, and when you begin to pray it, God turns it back on you and says, okay, be someone who brings the kingdom of God in your workplace. Be someone who brings the kingdom of God in your neighborhood. Be someone who looks out at the chaos of this world and acts. Become the type of person who brings heaven to earth. Now, I don't know if you heard what I just said, but be the type of person who brings heaven to earth. You look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is, which is where this prayer like, is nestled in. And you look at the, the Sermon on the Mount and you say, well, I thought I was a good person. And now I see the kind of life that Jesus has just called me to live and it is beyond me. And I can't do it. Like there's a bit of a desperation that has to come over you before you pray this prayer. And then you say, God, I need your help. And when you pray this prayer, here's what happens. It's like a hose that connects from your soul up to the heavens to God. And God begins to pour his kingdom into your heart, into your soul. And then it lifts you up. And then you look around and you've been strengthened now to do what God has called you to do. The prayer, it just keeps on turning back on you. And it's, it's making you into this new type of person. And as it's happening, you don't really like it. And I'm going to tell you why you don't. Because there are things going on in your life right now that you don't like about you. And you would like those things to change. And so you say, God, I would like for you to change this about me. And then he says, I'm going to change you, but I'm actually maybe perhaps going to leave this thing that you really want me to get rid of because there's other stuff I would like to change about you first. In fact, there is a chance there is something that you are doing right now that you don't want to do anymore that you will continue to do for the rest of your life. And what that, show, what that begins to do is humble you into realizing you are completely reliant upon God. You have to come to this place of complete desperation and then complete trust. And then when you get there, that's when the hose comes in and the kingdom of God is pouring into you. And then that's when you begin to change the way he wants you to. And he's not going to change you quick. It's going to be slow. Because growth is painful, and if you grow too, like if your muscles get too big, your skin starts to stretch apart because you can't grow that fast. And so you grow slow, and that's what real growth looks like, slow growth. And it's usually not the things that you want to be growing in, but God would have it. And C.S. Lewis describes this beautifully. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he is building quite a different house than the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. So he's breaking you before he's putting you back together. And some of you don't feel like you're growing right now, and it's because you're breaking 
and there are pieces of gold just lying all over. And you don't recognize them as gold, and you don't recognize what God is doing, but he's making you into this beautiful palace. And some of you think that you are amazing. And you are just yet a decent little cottage. And he's got so much more in store for you. You have no idea the version of you that you are meant to be in heaven. And God is at work in making you become that. And he's not going to leave you as that little cottage. In fact, it's a gracious thing that he kind of breaks you down so he can build you into something much greater. So that's it. The kingdom of God in your heart is like that. And then the next part of praying for the kingdom to come means that you are praying for the word of God to come in you and into the world. And let me tell you what this means. It means you can't have the kingdom without the king. There is a problem if you look throughout church history that looks like this. The church has at the centerpiece Christ as a rescuer. At the core of who Christ is and what he has done is a rescuer, a savior. But it means a lot that he's a rescuer. It means he comes on the scene and he says something like this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. In other words, every other religion will send you a sage or a prophet that says that is the way home. And Christ says, I am the way home. Now, This message starts to sound exclusive, though it's not. It's actually the most inclusive message that there is because all are welcome to come to him. But it starts to feel a little exclusive. And so we start backing off the message and we say, you know what? Let's look first at his example of love. And we start saying, well, this is what Christ came to do, to show us how to live, to show us how to love well. And then we say, well, okay, so that means that the main thing that the church should be about is bringing good into the world. Now, what's the problem with that? Nothing and everything. We know it's good to bring good into the world, but if the main reason that the church exists is to do good, then we will fail to do good. If we lose the message but we still keep fighting for good, here's what's going to happen to us. We will lack the power to do good in this world because the message is what stands you up. The message is what takes you from death to life. Dead people do do no good in this world. I mean, it's like the zombies walking around. So we need something to make us alive, and the message makes us alive. And the message makes us people of joy. You know, one of, the biggest, one of the biggest problems that I see with Christians today, and especially perhaps in America, is that we lack joy. I just recently worked through uh, three books, uh, different biographies of different, like, amazing church pastors throughout history. And what I found is that every one of them on the Christian life, it all, like, when everything climaxed to what everything's about, it's about joy. We ought to be people of joy. And the way we become people of joy is by the message that gives us joy. The word gospel means good news. It's exciting news. It's it's exciting news about a king who has come. And let me tell you what the gospel is not. It is not if you do good, you are accepted by God. The gospel message is not if I obey God, he will accept me. It's not if I try hard, he's going to love me so much. It's... 
He is my hope. He is my salvation. I'm trusting in him. And what, here's what happens to you. When, when you say that, you are wrapped up like spoiled in acceptance. And then as you're spoiled in acceptance, this, lo- this warmth builds up in you and you just look out at people and you start loving people. And you're like, I don't know what's happening to me. Like I used to be this tough dude, but now I'm just like crying and looking at people and I love them and I don't know what to do about this. It's like, well, it's the joy that Christ has put in you that's causing you to love people because this message is true. And so if it doesn't sound like the greatest news you've ever heard, well, you're likely misunderstanding it. So what is this exciting news? The exciting news goes like this. We are lost wanderers, and we know there is a home, and we can't find it. The, the path has been wiped away. It's, we can't find it. So we cry out, God, I need your help. And the king hears you. And he comes running down the mountain to come and meet you. And as he meets you there, he says, follow me. So you start following him. And as you're following him around, you start to notice that he's not quite the king that you thought he was. You thought he was about to get ready to do away with all evil. But then after following him, you have come to realize that if he does away with all evil, there's not going to be anything left. In other words, there is something in us that not only knows that our world is not the way it should be, but deep down we know as much as we want to pretend like it's not there, we know. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a horrible truth to find out, but at the same time, it is so good to find out that we are not who we're supposed to be. There's something in us that's wrong. We have this propensity to keep messing things up. And so we follow him and we say, okay, if he's going to do away with all evil, we're all done for. And then he has a solution. His solution is the cross. And our king goes and he's nailed upon this cross. And as he's nailed there, every bit of evil is put on him. Every evil that I have done, every evil that you have done, every evil that you have thought, it's put onto him. And he wears that evil upon himself. And then he is crushed under the weight of judgment. And it buries him down into the dust. It buries him into hell. And you know what that means? Evil is dead. He's done away with it. It's just, it's like the death blow that we're waiting finally for death to topple over and be done. And then he rises. He shows his power. And then we're like, oh, this, he's back. This is amazing. And he says, I got to go. And the disciples are like, what? And he's like, yeah, I got to go. And they're like, no, you don't. And he's like, yes, I do. And in fact, it's going to be good for you if I leave. And they say, well, how is that possible? Well, when I leave, I will send you my spirit. And I'm going to go sit on the throne. And my rule and my reign will cover all of heaven's. And when that happens and the spirit is in you, here's what your life is going to be like. You're going to want to run from me again, but the spirit won't let you. You're going to go this way and the spirit's going to pull you back. And you're going to go back this way and then the spirit's going to keep pulling you back to me and up to me. And you're going to go further in, further up into the kingdom of God. You see, it's still complete dependence on him. It's the word that you need so desperately that stands you up and makes you someone of strength, someone of moxie, someone who can change the world around you. And when that starts happening, and enough people 
I mean, you understand this. The kingdom of God started with 12 men, 12 ordinary men. It's like, give, let there be, let there be 12 again who, who, who understood this truth and the world will change all over again. It's what changes society, the kingdom of God. This is our third point. The kingdom of God is, when you pray that prayer, you're asking for it to come in society. This is beyond your home. This is beyond your workplace. This is beyond your neighborhood. This is about justice being done. This is about looking out at the world and seeing things that are wrong and praying for them to be made right. Now, as soon as you pray that prayer, the prayer gets turned back on you. And this is, what are you going to do? Now, I will tell you this. The people who do justice the best are the people, well, they've prayed for the kingdom of God to come into their home first. It stands you up and it gets you ready. If you're in pain, it's really hard to bring the kingdom of God. If your life is a mess, it's really hard to bring the kingdom of God. However, sometimes those are still the best people who end up doing it too. Because, well, that's just how God works on us. This is why for this last month, we've had this Justice and Mercy Month. Because what we're hearing from is we're hearing from organizations who have said, I have spotted something wrong with this world around us. And I've identified what it is and I found a solution. And we want to partner with these organizations as we together then seek to bring the kingdom of God in our area. And you know the Bible has this great emphasis on helping those who can't help themselves. And if you will let me say it, there is this idiotic saying that goes like this. God helps those who help themselves. And I just want you to know Christianity is the exact opposite of that. Because what Christianity is saying is that God is helping those who can't help themselves. We're on the ground. We are, we're in desperate need. We can't even stand up on our own. And so a Savior comes and he does the work. He saves us. We were too weak to do it on our own. And then once you've been saved, you look out at the world and you say, I now have this new heart that wants to help those who can't help themselves. The poor, the oppressed the orphan, the widow, the sick, and the lame. And so we get to work. Now, sometimes helping hurts people because we don't do it the right way. Helping requires a lot of wisdom. There's this great book called When Helping Hurts. It's all about all of these scenarios that have happened when somebody had good intentions, but without wisdom, they help somebody and it makes it worse. Um, And this is why I think the church is the solution to bringing good into the world. Because we have this message that creates love to well up within us. We look at what's wrong and we say, I got to do something here. But also the kingdom of God, it looks like a blanket that's covering the earth. It's not these big, huge churches, but it's the kingdom of God spread out over all the earth, these small communities that can welcome people in. And when someone starts trying to take advantage of the system, we just say, hey, look, look, man, I love you. And I want to tell you that you can do this. Take responsibility. Join us in bringing the kingdom of God. Now, sometimes there are people that they don't need to hear that. They need help. And we saw this beautifully displayed in the early church. So in the early church, there's, this, there's a guy named uh, Rodney Stark. 
he is a uh, he is a sociologist, and he set out to prove Christianity wrong. So he approached it from a sociological perspective, and, and he wrote this book called The Rise of Christianity. He ends up becoming a Christian through his research. And what he found is that here's what was the context in the early church. The Romans hated Christians, enemies. But then a plague broke out. And Romans began to banish their family and their friends outside the walls of the city to keep the plague from spreading. And then Christian women went, picked up these sick people with the plague and nursed them back to health. They took a great risk. Some, some of these women died doing this. But others, when they got sick, they had other Christian women around them that nursed them back to health. There was bravery here. There was a huge risk that was being taken, and they took it. So Christianity flourished. Because what happened is these Romans were being loved by their enemies more than they were being loved by their family and friends. And it, it gave so much credibility to the message. The message is not... The message is what saves it. You, can, you can't love people to Christ. There has to be words spoken about him. But if you speak words without the message, then the, the message, you speak words without the actions, then the message means little. Because there's no proof that you're actually a beacon of hope and beacon of change. The, the early church also did this. When a baby was born with defects, the baby was thrown into a ditch to die. And it was, again, Christian women, brave Christian women, who sacrificed much, ra- grabbed these babies, raised them up in their, as their own, and raised them up in the faith. There's a lot of cost here. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, now, whether I'm right about this, and I, I could be right, I could be wrong, but it doesn't matter. It helps me make a point. And sometimes pastors do that. So I, I was struck by what appeared to be a, a lack of bravery on Christians' part during covid and I, I'm not saying we shouldn't be wise. What, what I'm saying is that if you look back at the early church, these women were risking their lives knowing that they could be walking into death for their enemies. Where did that come from? Like you think about this, this is your enemy and you're about to risk your life for someone who hates you so that they might live. And you might die because of it, and yet they endured it. Where does that come from? It comes from this message of understanding that while we were enemies of God, he came and he died for us. So now we look out at our enemies with love because that's the way that God looked at us. And I was also struck, I'm also struck by um, abortion protesters who are not willing to say, If you will let me, I will love this child as my own. And I will raise him or her up. And I will give him or her a good life. Or let me help you. You see, the kingdom of God, when it comes, it's costly. And that's how you know it's happening. That's how you know it's coming, because there's a great cost. When Jesus gave his life, he gave his life for the kingdom of God to come. And it cost him everything. So there will always be a cost when the kingdom is coming. You know why? Because our world is not the way it's supposed to be. There is a fight before us. 
One day, all things will be made right, but right now, there is a war. And it looks like this. You look out at evil, and you overcome evil with good. It looks like this. You look out at people who once you might call your enemies, but you look at them anyways with love, and you just love them anyways. This is what it looks like. This is absolutely radical, and it's absolutely impossible for you to do. You will not do this without this message resonating in the halls of your heart. It changes you. But, and here's the good news, his kingdom will come in full. And that gives you the strength to know that there is just a time for me to do this. And one day his kingdom will come in full. And this is our fourth point. When you pray for the kingdom of God, you're praying for the kingdom to come all the way. When Jesus comes on the scene, he says, my kingdom is here. What he means is it's here, but it's not yet in full. Another way to pray your kingdom come is come Lord Jesus. Because the promise of Christianity is that when, when Christ returns, all things will be made right. Now, I, have, I want to tell you this funny story. The last church I was, where I was, um, there was a pastor who was giving a sermon. And he was talking about the greatness of heaven and how God is everything we need. And we don't need anything else but him. And, and, and so he says, you know, that means heaven is just going to be us and God. And so that means there's not going to be dogs and cats in heaven. And he said this, not knowing that that morning a little girl's cat had died. And she was crying all day long. And I get what he's trying to do, right? Because he is enough. But at the same time, do you know what God has done? He says it's not good for us to be alone. He's given us each other because we need each other. We don't just need God. In a way, that's all, he's all we need. But in another way, he wants us to have more, and that's each other. And he wants us to have what he's created. And he wants us to enjoy all of his creation. So if all things are going to be made new, then I think that means all things are made new. And what it means is that there is a king, and he will return, and he's going to come to this earth, and this earth is going to be made new. And it's beginning to sound like a fairy tale, isn't it? At the end, they live happily ever after. And then we start beginning to dismiss it, like our doubts start setting in, and we say, that sounds too good to be true, this is stuff for children, and I'm an old man now, and maybe I'm cynical, but I'm supposed to be cynical because I've been hurt in this life. Well, or maybe not. Maybe there is a hope, and maybe there's something to these fairy tales. In fact, Maybe the reason you like fairy tales is because the memory of Eden is still written in your soul. And you're seeking out a new Eden. And deep down you know that you are made for a world where everything is made right. Which means that every great story and every fairy tale is just an echo of the greater true story, which is Christianity. So when the page turns and the king comes down, Everything wrong will be made right. Everything sad will come untrue. Everything wrong is undone. This is the promise. And when that happens, we will dance on the streets with our ancestors. We will sing with our children and we will dine with the king. And we will run through his halls of his home. And we were going to find, when we do that, we're going to find a door. And above that door is going to have your name on it. And it's the name that God has given you, your eternal name. 
and you will dwell with him forever, and it will be perfect and beautiful ecstasy and bliss. It will be joy forevermore. And you'll be free to be the version of you you've always been meant to be. You have no idea the beauty that will surround you, the light that will encompass you. And you're going to be completely known by God and loved. And you're going to be completely known by everyone in this room and completely loved. And it's because the king has taken his throne. And do you know what you're going to see when he does? I believe this is true. You're going to see him, and you're going to see him scarred. What am I talking about? These are marks of his love. Now, let me show you. Let me prove this to you. When Jesus rose, like, he's called the first fruits before us. Like, he's paving the way. He's the forerunner. So his body, he has this new body. He is risen, this resurrected body. And then Thomas, doubting Thomas, hears about it, and he says, "Uh uh-uh. I won't believe this is true until I can put my fingers in his side and in his wounds in his hands. A few days later, Jesus says, hey, Thomas, it's me. Check him out. My wounds. My wounds. Doubting Thomas, the skeptic, has the greatest proclamation at this point in history when he says, you are God. The resurrected Christ bears the mark of his love for you and for me. And that means for all of eternity, you're going to look upon him on his throne and you're going to see the scars and the scars are going to be reminders of to you that he went and conquered sin and death to establish his kingdom. His scars are going to be the way that reminds you he birthed his kingdom that way. Those scars will be a reminder that the kingdom has come at the hands of a sinner that held a hammer. The kingdom of God comes by a sinner's hammer, three nails, and one cross. That's how it's established. Let's pray. Father, the the cost is great for your kingdom to come. We know this because we see your son. And if we are honest, we are scared of what you might ask of us. But your word tells us that perfect love casts out fear. So we ask you that you would put in us a love that is so overwhelmingly good so warm, so tingly, so breathtakingly majestic that it would lift us up and turn us into people who are brave for your kingdom, who see the cost. And we say like our Savior, for the joy that was set before us, we endured the cost, whatever that cross might be, because we know that on the other side of the cost, 
will be you and others who have found you. Make us brave, God, for your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at the Grove Church Official, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.